Okay, Romans 13, 1 to 7. Now, before we dive into the passage, I just want us to uh, just take a moment just to get our bearings again in the book of Romans. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 1 to 8, we see the principles of the gospel. Okay, we're all sinners, we're all under condemnation, but because of the death of Christ on our behalf, there is justification where we can be delivered from the guilt of sin. There's sanctification where we can be delivered from the power of sin. In short, there is salvation for us, which is received by faith and lasts forever. Then we come to chapters 9, 10 and 11, where Paul addresses the problems of the gospel. Now, it's not the first problems that Paul addresses in the book of Romans. There's a problem that he addresses in chapter 3. It's a dilemma. It's a moral dilemma. How can God be just and the justifier of ungodly people? That's a dilemma. God can solve it. God solves that dilemma in his grace and his mercy. God finds a way to do it through the gospel. But then as he comes to chapter 19 and 11, there is another problem. There is another dilemma. It is this. How can the gospel be true and God keep his covenants and promises to the nation of Israel which don't believe the gospel at this point in time? And God can solve that problem. God can solve that problem because in his goodness and his grace, one day the nation of Israel will acknowledge Jesus as their saviour and receive him as their Messiah. But then we come to chapters 12 through 16, the last section of the book of Romans, which have to do with the practice of the gospel. That is how a Christian with a renewed mind lives out the gospel in everyday life. And so far we've seen in chapter 12 how a Christian with a renewed mind is to respond to God and how we are to view ourselves and how we are to function in the church. And last week we saw how we are to relate to others, even when others don't treat us the right way. But now we come to chapter 13. And in verses 1 to 7, Paul goes on to show how the Christian with a renewed mind functions in secular society. With particular reference to our attitude towards those who are over us, those who have authority over us, especially governmental authority that's the context here in Romans 13 1 to 7 now in the New Testament the Greek word for authority is the word exousia and that Greek word occurs four times in the first two verses and each time it's translated by the word power let's have a look at that let every soul be subject to the higher powers exousia authorities for there's no power or authority but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation, or they'll come under judgment. Now when it comes to the topic of human government, many people, and Christians included, are very cynical Someone has defined government as structures that will last as long as the undertaxed can defend themselves against the overtaxed. Some people are quite cynical about government, while others are justly concerned, especially when we consider some of the legislation that is being proposed and passed these days. Yet as we consider what God's word has to say about governmental authority, what is clear 
is that a Christian with a renewed mind will have a high view of it and will be submissive to it. And that's the message that comes through consistently in these seven verses. Now clearly the church and the state are distinct entities with very distinct roles. And the fact that we have both duties to God and to the state is equally clear in Jesus' words when he said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Here in Romans 13, 1-7, Paul enlarges upon the state, the state's God-appointed role, and on the role of Christians in relation to it. Although the emphasis here is on personal citizenship rather than than any particular theory of church-state relations. But what he writes here is especially remarkable when we recall that at that time there were no Christian authorities in Paul's life. There was no national Christian government, there was no regional Christian government, there was no local Christian government. On the contrary, at that time, government was either Jewish or Roman, and therefore largely unfriendly or even hostile to the church. And yet Paul regards them as being established by God. God who would require Christians to submit to them and cooperate with them. Paul, it would seem, inherited the long-standing tradition of the Old Testament that, quote, from the book of Daniel, the Most High ruleth in the kingdoms of men and giveth it unto whomsoever he will, and that by God's wisdom kings reign and princes rule. Four major points for us to consider from this passage this morning. The first one, the first of all, is let's consider some principles of authority. If you, go, if, if you ever go to the Grand Canyon, and I hope you do, what you will find is that from any vantage point, it's impossible to take it all in. It's, it's too much to see at one time for its sheer vastness and for its grandeur. And the book of Romans is a lot like that. So vast is its content, so grand is its truth, that even though we've walked through virtually verse by verse, there are th- things there, things here that we've certainly missed and one thing that we may not have focused on is that throughout the epistle of Romans Paul describes God in authoritative terms God's authority is clearly demonstrated in the book of Romans in numerous ways for example back in chapter 1 we see God's authority demonstrated in creation where through his authoritative word God created things that previously were non-existent. And through his creation, invisible things about him, that is, his eternal power and his Godhead, they are clearly demonstrated. He spake and it was done. And because God's eternal power and supreme authority is clearly demonstrated in creation, everyone, Paul says, is without excuse. We know he exists. We know he's the creator. We know he is 
the authority. God's authority is demonstrated in creation. God's authority is demonstrated in legislation. Chapter 2 of Romans tells us that God is the one who gave the law. He gave it to the Jew and wrote it on tables of stones. He gave it to the Gentiles and wrote it upon our hearts. But it's God's law. And he determines the consequences for breaking it. The wages of sin is death. That's God's law. And he's the one who has universal jurisdiction over it. Chapter 3 verse 19. All the world is guilty before every mouth stop. All the world guilty before God. Because all the world has broken God's law. God's authority, authority is demonstrated in legislation. Thirdly, God's authority is demonstrated in the resurrection Chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power. The powerful Son of God by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. And the resurrected Christ says, all authority in heaven and in earth belongs to me, Jesus says. That the ultimate authority rests with God is beyond question. But it should be noted that God often exercises his authority through delegation. God's authority is often delegated. The most obvious illustration of this, of course, is the appointment of his son, Jesus Christ, to be the judge of all men. The Father hath committed all judgment unto the Son, the scripture tells us. Romans 2.16 speaks of a day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. That's not surprising that all judgment should be committed unto the Son. But Paul then goes on to share something with us which I think is quite surprising by adding that God also delegates his authority to men. For example, in the book of Ephesians and Colossians, Paul teaches that God delegates his authority to parents to lead the family, especially the fathers. And in those same epistles, we're also taught that authority is delegated to employers to lead in the workplace. And in the pastoral epistles, we see that authority is delegated to pastors and elders to lead the church. But here in chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, the emphasis is on the role that human government plays in the administration of divine authority. In the beginning of verse 1, it tells us very clearly that God has ordained governmental powers, governmental authorities, to whom mankind must submit as we submit to him. In fact, failure to do so is seen as resisting God and meets his divine disapproval or judgment we see at the end of verse 2. Notice that Paul begins with a clear command of universal application. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. And then he goes on to give us the reason for this requirement. The reason is because government's authority is derived, delegated from God. He affirms this three times. Verse 1 continues, for there is no power but of God. Verse 1 continues, for the powers that be, the powers that exist, are ordained of God. Verse 2, whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance or the institution of God. Now we do need to be 
a little bit cautious in inter interpreting Paul's statements here. What he says here cannot be, cannot, cannot be taken to mean that all the Caligulas and all the Herods and all the Neros and all the Domitians in New Testament times and all the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Saddam Husseins of our times, we can't take his words to mean that those men were directly personally appointed by God and God is responsible for their behaviour or that their authority under no circumstances was to be resisted. Paul means rather that all human authority is derived from God's authority so that we can say to rulers like Je Jesus said to Pilate, thou couldst have no authority at all except to be given to you from above. And Pilate misused his authority to condemn Jesus. Nevertheless, the authority he used to do this was delegated to him by God. Thus, human government is a divine institution with divine authority delegated by God. And as such, it is a privileged position with great responsibility, which is illustrated for us in the fact that the Greek word here translated ordained at the end of verse 1, powers that be or ordained of God, the Greek word there is tasso. And it's the same Greek word that God used to ordain Paul to his apostleship, to appoint him to his apostleship. In other words, God considers the ordaining to Paul as an apostle and the ordaining of men to human government as being equally significant things in his divine economy. Furthermore, in verse 4, tells that government officials are the ministers of God, the word for minister there is diaconus, diaconos, which is the same used word used to describe Christ in Romans 15 verse 8, where he is described as the minister for the truth, diaconos. Same word used to describe Phoebe in chapter 16 verse 1, and her work as a servant of the church, which is at Centria. And even in addition to that, in verse 6, Paul says the governmental authorities are God's minister. And the term that he used here is even more striking because it's not diakonos here, it's liturgos, which is usually the word reserved for people who operate in the priestly ministry, specially appointed to this high office. Same word here used to describe government officials. Putting it all together. In light of the exalted position of divinely appointed governmental authority, we as Christians, says here, should be subject to such authority. And the extent to which our submission is shown will be an evidence of the extent to which the Holy Spirit has renewed our minds. Because only a mind enlightened by the Spirit of God would see the secular powers in such a light. Secondly, let's consider the purpose of authority. If we were to go back to the book of Genesis, right back to the opening chapters of the Bible, it's clear that man was not created to be on his own. So God created Eve. 
and God ordained the family. And as families multiplied, God formed society, community in which people are to live. And this is God's design. Man is to live in, soci in societies. For society and community is able to provide for man blessings and benefits which individualized living cannot furnish. And this provision requires a sense of responsible cooperation, particularly with the necessary powers that have been appointed by God to maintain and administer that society. Society needs authorities to maintain order. We see that back in Genesis chapter 9, where after the flood, God instituted human government to maintain order in this new society. God has ordained this. He ordained it in the days of Noah, and it has continued ever since. It continues to this day. Paul says, the powers that be are ordained of God. And this is important for us to realise. Because the fact of the matter is that Christians don't cease to be members of society simply because we become citizens of heaven. And I think this point needs to be reinforced because throughout the history of the church, there have been those Christians who have failed to realise and recognise the benefits that the government does provide for them and the reasonable expectation that the government has of them. Well, what benefits do the government provide for us? Well, if you look at verse 3 to 5, we see that governmental rulers are responsible for national safety. Verse 3. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. He is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, he must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Rulers are responsible for national safety. And this means they must do two things. Number one, first of all, they have to protect the community. And Paul says they protect the community in two ways. Firstly, by resisting those who do wrong. Verse 3 begins, For rulers not a terror unto good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Now the only people who should really be afraid of the government are those who break the law. Now of course Paul is stating here the divine ideal, not necessarily human reality. And yet, civil authorities generally realise that basic morality is essential to a workable society. Society will never flourish where man is allowed to squander his life and pursue relentlessly his own self-centred course. No society can survive long where sinful man is allowed to engage in all manner of corruption and violence and murder and theft and dishonesty and extortion and bribery and drug addiction and sexual sin and abuse and so on and so on. Punishment for wrongdoing is essential for a nation's self-preservation. Without it, a society will self-destruct. Ecclesiastes 10 verse, sorry, 8 verse 11 tells us what happens when governmental authorities are very slow, slow to 
to punish the wrongdoers. This is what it says. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And how much more are men fully set to do evil when punishment is not executed at all? Yet when the government operates properly, the people who do wrong are punished accordingly. And then lawbreakers have every reason to fear. And whilst fear may not necessarily be the best motivation for right behaviour, it is a legitimate reason and it is necessary in a civil society. Therefore, governments are required by God to resist those who do wrong and to reward those who do right, which is the next point that Paul makes. The second way the government protects the community is by rewarding those who do the right. Verse 3 continues, Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise from the government. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. Now we know that God rewards faithfulness. God tells us that. He rewards faithfulness, if not in this life, certainly, absolutely, totally in the next. God rewards faithfulness. And he sets that reward before us as an incentive. As an incentive for faithful service. Therefore, it is right and it is fitting that people who render outstanding public service should be given public recognition. Every nation honours its great and gifted citizens and every wise nation should honour its good citizens. It's a positive incentive for doing right. Certainly there needs to be the negative warning. If you do wrong, you'll be punished. But there also needs to be this positive incentive of encouraging people to do right. The offer of reward. And yet for us as Christians, whether we're recognised or not, we are members of society and we are to concentrate on doing that which is good for Jesus' sake. Now, it is... A fact that many Christians do neglect the social implications of the gospel because they don't want to be accused of believing in a so-called social gospel. A social gospel, of course, really is no gospel at all because it puts the emphasis on human effort for salvation. That places the cart before the horse. They think that good works result in salvation and fail to see that good works are the result of salvation. Some Christians see the first truth, okay, that salvation is by faith in Christ alone without works, but they don't then go on to see that there is a place for works following salvation. Ephesians 2 tells us, salvation is not of works lest any man should boast. But then he goes on to say that we are his workmanship created now in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we, we should walk in them. Ephesians 2, verses 9 and 10. Writing to the Philippians on the same theme, Paul says again, Work out your own salvation, for it's God which works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He works in you, now you work it out. It's got to come out in your life. You're not saved by your works, but out from you is to come. Now, 
good works as an evidence, James, think about the book of James, as an evidence of your salvation, that you truly have faith. It's recorded about the Lord Jesus, that he went about doing good. What higher example could we have than that? And this kind of good should be encouraged and acknowledged and rewarded by governments. Governments are responsible to protect the community, resisting the wrong, rewarding the right. They're also responsible to punish the criminal. Protect the community, yes, but also to punish the criminal. Verse 4 continues. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he, the government, bears not the sword in vain. He is the minister of God, the revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. As the minister of God, as the servant of God, doing God's work in this regard, the government is expected to, what's it say there, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. If any man breaks the law, he should expect to have to pay for it. Because the government under God, as ordained by God, has the authority by God to bring him to trial and to punish him. Now in that expression, he beareth not the sword in vain. We have a very strong statement concerning the power which God vests in government. The sword is not just an innocuous symbol of power. A scepter could communicate that message. The sword speaks of the ultimate power of government under God, and that is to inflict capital punishment. If you think back to the earliest period of human existence, when the Lord instituted human government, at the same time he also instituted capital punishment. Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, God says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. When Jesus told Peter, Put up again your sword into its place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. There Jesus is reminding Peter that the penalty for killing one of Jesus' enemies would, that, would be that Peter perished himself through execution, which Jesus acknowledges here would be justified. Don't do it, Peter. And it won't do us to say that capital punishment was for the Old Testament era only and not for the New. Here is a statement in the New Testament saying that the government has the authority to take the life of a capital offender. Now people might argue that this goes against Exodus 20 verse 13, Thou shalt not kill. Well, that commandment there relates to murder. Capital punishment is not murder. Capital punishment is prescribed as the required punishment for certain capital offences. Nor is capital punishment a law versus grace issue. The principle of it predates the Mosaic law. It goes all the way back to Genesis 9. And it was endorsed by Jesus in Matthew 25. And it's repeated in the New Testament, Romans 13. And there's no conflict here between between Paul's words in Romans 12, 9 and 20 about not taking vengeance and his words here about the use of the sword to punish evil. 
In chapter 12, it's talking about personal. Here, it's talking about constitutional. Chapter 12, it's talking about personal hatred and vengeance at work. Here, it's talking about justice at work. And while we as individuals are not to take vengeance into our own hands, but leave it in God's hand, what does God do? Sometimes God takes it out of his hands and puts it in the hands of human government to act on his behalf. Verse 5 really is a summary and a conclusion. It gives us two reasons why we should obey the government. Firstly, for wrath's sake, for fear of incurring the wrath as a punishment. And also for conscience sake, because even if I don't get caught, it's still an issue of right and wrong. Two different motives here for the same action. Both involve legitimate self-interest. I don't want to be punished by the authorities. I don't want to be troubled by my conscience. Governments are responsible for national safety. Protecting the community, punishing the criminal. But in addition to that, they're also responsible for national solvency. Verse 6, for for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. For for this cause, relates back to the previous five verses. In which Paul has set forth the Christian's obligation to submit to governmental authority. And he also indicates that paying tribute is part of our general obligation here. The Greek word for tribute is phoros. This word was commonly used of taxes paid by individuals, especially those paid by citizens of a subjugated nation to their foreign rulers. And as citizens of heaven, we're aliens down here paying our taxes to foreign rulers. This levy was a combination of income and property tax. And in the context here it indicates, Paul's use of the term represents paying of taxes of all kinds, all of which Christians are also to pay. Now, I don't know anyone who likes paying taxes. We do it. We should do it. Okay. But I don't know anyone who really enjoys doing it. However, the government has a responsibility to run the country, which includes protecting the community and punishing the criminal. And all of that costs money. And the services rendered to the public by the government, it all costs money. They have to pay their officials to work in their many departments. And since government officials give their time and their talents to carrying out God's will for the maintenance of a stable society, they are entitled to our support. It's certainly to our advantage to live in a society of law and order. And so we must be willing to bear the cost. It stands to reason that we who benefit from the services must pay for them. And that payment is to be made in the form of taxes. So that's the purpose of governmental authority. They're responsible for national safety, national solvency. And then in verse 7 we see... The privilege of governmental authority, verse 7, render therefore to all their dues, we're told. Tribute, render tribute to whom tribute is due. Render custom to whom custom is due. Render fear to, to whom fear is due. Render honour to whom honour is due. 
those who occupy the positions of responsibility in a nation are entitled to the support of those that they govern. Which means that rulers are entitled to our monetary support. Now Paul's just been saying that national leaders, government authorities are responsible for national solvency. They need money to run the country, but they also need money to live. So they continue to run the country. Therefore, Paul tells us where to, to render to all their dues, what they're due. Give tribute to whom tribute is due. Give custom to whom custom is due. The word tribute there was especially the yearly tax levied on persons or real estate. It would correspond, I think, to our income tax or property taxes. In light of all this, what a, what a, what a disgrace. I think that's the right word. What a disgrace it is when Christians cheat on their tax return. Tertullian was a Christian leader in the second century. And this is what he recorded. He says that what the Romans lost because Christians refused to bring gifts to the temple, the pagan temples, what the Romans lost because of that, they gained by the conscientious payment of taxes by the Christians. Government officials have a job to do. Therefore, God tells us that we need to pay our taxes. Custom was the indirect tax on goods. It corresponds to our sales tax. And it is also to be cheerfully paid by Christians. Now, both of these taxes were collected in Paul's day by the publicans. And it was well known. That because of the publicans, there were flagrant abuses in the taxation system. So much so that the publicans, they were the most despised of all people. And yet Paul doesn't enter into the rights and the wrongs of the taxation system. He simply tells Christians, we have to pay our taxes because the national leaders have the right to our monetary support. And they also have the right to our moral support. He goes on to say at the end of verse 7. Because we all know that it's possible to keep the letter of the law, but not the spirit. It's all, always possible for us to have the right action, but not the right attitude. And say, so, yeah, we can pay our taxes, but have a filthy attitude towards those who receive them and benefit from them. So Paul adds this. He adds that in our support of the government, we must render to all their dues. Fear to whom fear. Honour to whom honour. Honour. The word fear there is the conscientious regard for and awe of those who are in authority, which is, I think, particularly not conspicuous today. Honour is to be given to those set over us, for those who, are, but especially, for, especially to those who have a distinct role appointed by the state. Both Peter and Jude. Tell us that we are not to speak evil of dignitaries. That's no part of the Christian calling. What does Peter go on to say? Honour all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the king. That's perhaps worth repeating at this point. That the emperor of Rome at this time, when Paul wrote these words, was none other than the notorious Nero. And the government of the Roman Empire for many years had been led by a group of Caesars whose private lives were a public scandal. 
and whose corrupt administration was a long blot upon the history of Rome, even a casual reading of Suetonius will reveal this. And besides all of that, Paul himself was a Jew. And in his unconverted day, he had in his heart that fierce hatred of an occupying power that rankled the Hebrew heart. Such hatred before long caused the Jewish people to rise up in great protest against Rome. But Paul allowed no rationalisation to dilute his stand. Rulers have responsibilities imposed upon them by God to whom they are answerable. And we Christians, we have responsibilities imposed upon us by God to submit to the government. And these responsibilities on us, we will also be answerable to God. Therefore, we are to freely give our support to the divinely appointed governments that we live under. And when there are people within the government who we can see are trying to do the right thing against all the opposition that is there, when we can see those who are trying to do the right thing, we really need to pray for them and support those people above and beyond. We have a hard job. Fourthly, finally, let's come to this fourth point about the problem of authority, which we'll just touch on briefly. I think we can all see the problem is this. It's clear that governmental authority is derived from God. But what, ha what, hap what, what happens when they abuse their authority? What happens when they reverse their God-given duty and commend those who do evil and punish those who do good? Does the requirement to submit still stand when such has become such so morally perverse, the scripture is clear that we are to submit up to the point of up to the point where when the state tells us that we need to disobey God, okay, there's a change there. We support them up until that point. If the state commands us to do what God forbids. If the state forbids us to do what God commands, then it is our duty to resist and to obey God rather than men. This is what Peter said, found himself in the same situation. The Sanhedrin said, you cannot preach the gospel anymore. He said, sorry, I respectfully say sorry, but we must obey God rather than men. And they did. And they were thrown into prison because of it. They obeyed the Lord and they trusted him with the consequence. They obeyed the Lord and they trusted him with the result. Now this is, a, this is something which <clears throat> concerns me. Some of us have trouble obeying the Lord even when the government says you're free to do that. We are free to give out tracts on the street. And if someone attacks us because of it, guess what? The, the government would come to our defence. They would say, you're, you, that, that, you're not allowed to do that to such a person. You can't beat them up just because they're a Christian. The government would come to our defence. And yet the government will not always be so favourable as we see the prophetic picture coming clearer and clearer. 
And here's a time when we can obey God and not fear the government. But brethren, what's going to happen to the time when the government say, no, you, you can't obey God? What are we going to do then? If we don't have the courage to obey God now when it's easy to do so, we certainly won't have the courage to obey God when it's hard. We ought to obey God rather than men. We, we, we know that, we say that. But just think about how does that play out in your life? When do you do that? What are the situations when, when pressure is on, you cannot obey God, and yet you say, no, no, I'm doing it regardless. Whenever laws are enacted that contradict God's law, obeying God rather than man becomes our Christian duty. And there are notable examples of this in the scripture. Think about when Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all the newborn boys. They refused to do that. Exodus 1.17, the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men and children alive. When King Nebuchadnezzar issued the edict that all of his subjects must fall down and worship his golden image, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they refused to obey. They can't do that. They can't worship idols. One God, worship him alone. When Darius made a decree that for 30 days no one should pray to any God or man except himself, Daniel had a major problem with that. He refused to obey. And when the Sanhedrin banned the apostles from preaching in the name of Jesus, they refused to obey. All these were heroic refusals in spite of the threats that accompanied the edicts. In each case of civil disobedience, there was great personal risk. It was possible that they would lose their lives because of it. And if you read Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us that not everyone who took such a stand for the Lord was delivered. Sure, some were delivered. We mentioned some of them, but not everyone. Some were delivered, Hebrews 11 tells us, but then it says, but some were not. And some paid the ultimate price for their obedience to God, which is okay, because in heaven, it's all fine. Faithfulness is rewarded. When it became clear that the Nazis were pursuing their terrible racist policies in exterminating Jews, German pastor Martin Niemöller continued to preach the word. He continued to preach the Bible. He continued to preach the truth. And as a result of that, he was thrown into prison. And the prison chaplain, upon visiting the pastor, asked somewhat foolishly, what brings you here? Why are you in prison? To which Niemöller replied angrily, and brother, why are you not in prison? Brethren, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. This is our divine calling. This is how we are to see things with a renewed mind. This is how we are to see things. There are things that God has put in place for government and we submit to that. But there are things that God will require of us as Christians. And sometimes... That's going to contradict what the government says. 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. This is our divine calling for all those who have renewed minds. All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the instruction from your word as to how we are to function in society in respect to government. And Lord, we are impacted by the government in many ways. And I do pray that you'd help for us, help us all, to see it clearly, to see the issues clearly, and to do that which is right by the government un under God, being instructed by God as to how we should react and respond. Lord, help us to fulfil our civic duty, help us to fulfil our duty as Christians. But also give us the courage, Lord, when the time comes, to take a very, very strong stand, to be thoroughly convinced that we must obey God rather than man. Lord, help us to understand that's what's required. That's what's expected of us. That is the kind of faithfulness that you're looking for. That's the kind of faithfulness that you will reward ultimately one day. So, Lord, help us to take our rightful place in society, being the salt and light that we should be. And we ask that you'd help us in this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.